Turn in Holy Scripture this evening to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. And we will read the first 20 verses. The first 20. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us in offering, and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light." Wherefore he saith, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read that far. Our text for the sermon this evening is verses 1 and 2 of this passage. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us in offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, 
once again we have an exhortation that follows naturally, logically, and theologically from something that has been taught previously. What this follows from is the teaching that we are children of God. That's why the passage begins with the word therefore, be ye therefore. In the original that therefore comes first. And the exhortation has to do with doing something as dear children. That's not a new thought, but it is one that has run throughout the book showing that what the apostle is teaching here isn't grounded simply in what he has just said, but again points back to overall themes and doctrines that he has taught to the Ephesians. For example, in chapter 1 verse 5, we learned that the church is predestinated to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of God's will. There's the concept and the idea that we are children. That we are children of God is also implied by the fact that prior to regeneration, we also were children. But in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, we learn we were children of disobedience and children of wrath. We learned in chapter 4, verse 1, that by the knowledge of God, we become no more children who are tossed to and fro by every wind of false doctrine. And in chapter 3, verse 15, we learned that we are now, by the work of God through the Holy Spirit, part of the household of God. The household of God of whom the whole family of heaven and earth is named. That is, we are children of God. Therefore, there is an exhortation that comes from that. This, therefore, also relates to the context and is implied by the teaching of the context concerning the putting on of the old man or putting on of the new man and the putting off of the old. There we learned that the new man is that we are created after God in righteousness and holiness. That is, God makes us children born in the likeness of God, born after His image, and specifically in righteousness and holiness so that now we are no longer characterized by the deceitful lusts of the old man, but characterized by the new man. This instruction now of the apostle is again, as he has done before, adding to and further explaining what it means to be a child of God. In fact, it follows, as I said, logically, naturally, and theologically from that teaching that as children of God, we must act like Him. 
We must be like him. And specifically now, according to the text, imitate him. Imitate him. That's what that word follow means. That word does not mean follow, like a disciple follows his master. But the word there is the same word from which we get our English word to mime or to mimic. That is, to imitate, to act like, to act after someone else, and that is God. Because children, and even the children here, are examples, because they also are children of God, and we, their parents, are children of God, there will be special application made this evening to us parents, to us parents of God's children with regard to following God as dear children. So consider with me this evening imitating God as dear children. And in the first place, we notice that calling to all God's dear children that calling to all of God's dear children. And secondly, the behavior that we are to imitate as God's dear children. And finally, the application to the parents of God's dear children. The calling. If anyone would doubt that practice and calling follows doctrine, if one would object to that or reject that, one rejects the Scriptures or one shows himself to be a fool with regard to the Scriptures. For it is simply impossible to receive to know and to believe by faith the wonderful doctrinal truth that is taught in the first three chapters of this book. And think of all the wonderful doctrines they are. Really, they are a summary of the entire Christian faith. Here in this book, we have been taught about God's electing love of God's gracious and free redemption of us, of His adoption of us, of His sealing of us by the Holy Spirit, His joining of us to Christ so that we are His body and His members. We are His children. And out of that follows practice, follows a calling, follows instruction, and it must follow. And this text makes it clear. The therefore here connects one of these doctrinal truths to a calling and connects it in such a way that not only is it unmistakable, but it must be the case. The connection is drawn that tight, that closely, the calling that is set 
forth here follows, as I said, from what was taught earlier, much earlier. The main thought that it follows from, the main truth, the main doctrine, is that we are the children of God. We are children of God by way of predestination. We are children of God by way of redemption and adoption. We are children of God also because He transforms us according to His image. These are all the truths that were taught in various ways. And we're going to break them down in a little bit. But notice that this passage, this therefore, this doctrine that we are the dear children of God doesn't simply point back to one thing. In other words, it's not the case that you are simply children of God because of His love or because of His election. If we were to single out that, for example, as the entire and complete explanation for why we are children of God, we will have missed the other teaching of this passage as to how we become children of God and in what sense. And this passage, this therefore, this following truth is based upon all of them, not just one of them, but it's based upon the entire salvation of God that makes us His dear children. By this action of God, by this action of God, whether it be in His mind, so that He chose us in love to be members of Christ, or whether it be by His sending of Jesus Christ to redeem us from our sins, by which redemption we are made the legal property of God and become His children in that sense, or by the impartation of His Spirit, the implanting of a new man, which new man is made after the image of God in true righteousness and knowledge so that we are the children of God in that sense. By this, there is a decisive and radical change in the individual, in the person. That has been the teaching prior to this being done. Even, even though God has chose us to be His children, the Apostle taught we were children of wrath, children of disobedience. We belonged to another. And so this doctrine, this truth, this practice must be seen in that light. That is antithetically one is either a child of God or the child of another. And if one is a child of God, then he is no longer the child of another. And if one behaves as a child of God, one will not and does not behave as the child of the other. These are all the things that this is underlying, that underlies and is the foundation of this calling. Now what follows is this. That if indeed we are God's children, even God's dear children, then we follow God. 
And notice here that this is put in terms of a calling. The apostle is not simply stating a truth. He is not simply stating declaratively that if now you are God's dear children, then you will follow him, you will imitate him. And that's all that needs to be said. No, rather, this comes as a commandment. It comes as a calling, as an exhortation. Since now, seeing now, because now you are God's dear children, follow Him, imitate Him, mimic Him, be like Him. That's the exhortation. I said in my introduction that this naturally and logically and of course then also theologically follows from that. Let me explain. This naturally and logically follows because this is the very nature of children. Children of parents. The Apostle is arguing here from a truth that is universal, one that we all recognize, one that we all know by experience and observation, one that no one could possibly dispute or call into question. So much is it true that this is true not simply of human beings, but the beasts a foal acts like the horse from which it came, the kitten like the cat from which it is born, the baby bird acts, mimics, imitates its mother. That's the argument that's being made here. But now, it comes to us as rational moral creatures, creatures whom God has given a mind and a heart and a will as something to carry out, as a calling, as a duty. Because we are the clearest example of that as human beings, not only, but one in which our mind and our will and our heart are engaged. Whereas this might occur in nature among the beasts in one particular way, without mistake, and inevitably, man is different. We are humans. We are made body and soul. We were made in the image of God, which image we lost, and which image is restored in Jesus Christ. That's what explains it. Why do I stress this? Because all of this, when you put it together, explains our behavior. Explains who and what we are. And it's not as simple as simply saying, well, it's nature or it's nurture. The theological truth is found even here. The fact is, our behavior is partly explained by nature. 
we behave the way we do because we were created as human beings with a human nature. Also a human nature that is received by parents to the point where we often share their basic personality, their mannerisms even, and raw gifts. That's what happens in human beings. But that's not the end of the story. Our behavior is also partly explained by nurture. We behave the way we do because of the way that we are raised. We behave the way we do due to teaching. We have particular parents who have their own particular way of teaching who do that by example, who do that by the way that they behave. That's how we learn. We are not simply creatures of nature, but creatures of learning. And now also in light of the text, part of that is imitation. Included in nurture is that we learn by imitation or by example. We behave the way we do partly because we observe certain behaviors, certain actions in parents or other individuals, both for good and for evil. If parents curse, children will curse. If children are angry, the children will be angry. If parents are joyful, the children will be joyful. That adds you see a sense of urgency and forcefulness even to the calling. The idea is that this is not a commandment that simply expresses God's will and certainly His will arbitrarily. That God is simply not now just laying something before us to do because, well, He thinks it would be a good idea. But so important and basic is this to our spiritual life that God makes it a rule in nature. We have here, in other words, another example in Scripture of what is found in nature is simply there to teach us what is the true reality with regard to the spiritual. God, in other words, imprinted this very truth about our spiritual learning and upbringing nature and nurture in the creation itself so that it's unmistakable. If you ask the question, why is it that we can observe this in nature? The answer is God made it that way. God created it that way. And if you ask the question, why God created it that way? The answer is as an earthly parable to what is true of us spiritually and theologically. So true is it that if we would not imitate God as dear children, then we may infer that in fact we are not dear children. That's what you would do in nature, is it not? If you saw a creature following after a mother duck, and that creature was not quacking, but rather was singing like a robin, you would know instantly that that creature is not the child of that mother. That's how universal, that's how certain is this truth. And it's what lies behind the calling. 
I want to emphasize that this evening. The teaching of the Apostle Paul is not, while this is the way it is naturally in the world, almost instinctively, so therefore it's instinctive and natural with regard to you, I suppose that would be a conceivable possibility, but that's not the way it is. And that's demonstrated by the fact that this is laid before us as a calling, an exhortation. This is an earthly and natural example of what is the pattern of our calling with regard to God our Father. The behavior and character toward Him is partly explained by nature. What it knows to be a dear child of God, we would have to say, well, it's partly due to nature, not now in the sense that might immediately come to your mind, but from this point of view. This is the truth in the context that taught about our new man being created after God in righteousness and holiness. That gives you, as it were, a different nature. There's something different and new in you. And it is the nature. It is the likeness. It is the image of God. So that if you ask, well, why are you a children of God? Why are you a child of God who behaves that way? Part of the answer is nature. And by that I'll mean naturally as coming from Adam. But it has to do with what God did to you. You were begotten again. There was a transformation. There was something that happened. But that's only part of the story. It also has to do with nurture. Your spiritual behavior and character is also partly nurture. That's also the context. That's also something the Apostle Paul taught. He didn't say simply that you are children of God by election, that you are children of God by redemption and adoption, but you are children of God who behave a certain way and act a certain way because you were taught by God. Remember that? You have not so learned Christ, he said. And then goes on to talk about the old man and new man. There is learning. That's nurture. That's rearing. That's raising. So our behavior as children of God has to do with that. And the apostle now zeroes in on that and says, a part of nurture, a part of training, a part of learning, a part of being a dear child of God is imitation. Following after God. Not now, as I said, a disciple follows its master. Now that's true. That's a biblical truth that's taught. I don't deny that. But here it has to do with imitation. That, that action whereby we look at something, we observe it. We want it through our mind and then we practice it until we can do it as another did it. We all know what imitation is. This is not Pelagianism. If you want to know what a Pelagianism is, you look like the Belgian Confession, Article 15, where it's brought up. The Pelagians also taught that we are what we are by imitation. But here is where this is much different. Pelagians taught that, first of all, you're born neutral. You're born even perhaps naturally good, if not just neutral. And any evil that's found in you is learned. 
It's learned by imitation. And any good that's in you is also learned from imitation. That's not what the apostle is teaching here. It's not what he's teaching at all. But at the same time, we cannot deny simply because the Pelagians use that word that we learn as dear children by imitation either. Now, there is one particular behavior of God that we are to observe, to learn, and to imitate. That's brought out here. And it's the love of God in Christ for us. Be therefore followers of God as dear children. And now what follows is what specifically he's talking about. Notice that. Now from a certain viewpoint, everything that follows is really about that. But here he sums it all up really in one word as love. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and have given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. What's going on in verse 2 is he explaining now, this is what you are to imitate. Let's notice a few things about that. First of all, this is the love of God because Christ is God. That's worth noting that in this passage, you have an explicit proof that Christ is God. Notice how the text reads. Be followers of God and walk in love as Christ hath loved us. Notice the change. First, simply, God is mentioned. Follow God, but clearly the idea of the text is, and follow, therefore, Christ. Follow the love of God in Christ. But in so doing, he calls Christ God. That's worth noting. Not simply because it's a proof, but it's God's love. I want to emphasize that also this evening. I am going to refer and will refer to what Christ did as the chief example and expression of God's love. But let's not misunderstand that, because many will say that, many will talk about that, but it's sort of disconnected from God. They make a disconnect there, which is why soon they can start talking about God's love for all men. But if you ask, did Christ then actually save and redeem all men there in the cross? They would say, no. Are all men then dear children of God? No. There's a disconnect there. Well, that can't happen if you look at the text as it's written here. What the text is saying is that what Christ did is the love of God. It's the love of Christ and therefore also the love of God. It is God loving us. It's not simply a demonstration. It's not simply an expression, although that's not wrong because we know the same thing. When we hug our wife, that's an expression of our love, but it's also our love. You can hardly separate the two, but I want to make that point tonight. In this text is not only an explicit identification of Christ as God, but it connects what Christ did to that love of God. It is the love of God. And that especially. Here we learn a lot of things. Number one, that love is no mere emotion. 
It is not merely something that we find within us. It's not simply an attitude. But it's an attitude and activity. It's an attitude and it is an emotion. It is a feeling that acts. Again, notice how it's put. Number one, it's commanded. Walk in love. You not you cannot command emotions. Try it sometime. When you're overcome with emotions, try to command them. Well, love doesn't fit in that category. God commands love. Love me. Love your neighbor. And here, now walk in love. That tells us something very important about love. It's not just an emotion. It's not just something we find inside. But it comes to expression. It comes to active activity. And that's even brought out in the passage when it says, Now be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. And it doesn't say, and now simply, love as God loved you. Or love as Christ loved you. But walk in love. Love walks. Love acts. Love does something. And if you doubt that or question that, again, you have to go to this demonstration. We have to look at our Father and say, now, what did He do? And you'll discover that God didn't just simply sit in heaven and say, I love you. And I love you so much that I'm going to choose you and give you to Jesus Christ. But then He sent His only begotten Son. God Himself came in His Son. And He did something. And it lays out what He did. Notice also about this that Christ Himself walked in love as it were imitating His Father. There's something mysterious here. Christ as a man. Christ in His human nature is the chief expression of a dear child walking in love in perfect imitation of His Father. That's a wonderful thought. This is an amazing text. You have to see Christ according to His human nature. You see Christ as a human being. Christ as a man. Christ receiving from His own Father the summons, the calling, walk as my dear child. Follow me. Imitate me. Act as I act. And of course, Christ in His divine nature knew exactly what that was. He knew the love of the Father for the Son. He knew exactly how God acts and behaves. And so that's what He did. And you understand, that's what lies behind the cross. That's what lies behind the many statements of Christ. I come to do thy will. That's the one thing I'm doing. Now that more generally, the love of God we are called to imitate is a love of God that made us not only His particular children, but His dear children. Let's not overlook that. Oftentimes when we get to passages like this, we emphasize the particular love of God. That's good. We should be clear. 
It's a passage like this that makes clear that it's impossible that God loves everyone. It's impossible because if God loved everyone, then everyone would act like He does. Everyone would be a child of God. Everyone would behave as God behaves. And that's not true. Everyone knows it. Surely God's love is special. It is particular. It is for us and us alone whom He has chosen in that love whom He has made in His image, whom He has given His Spirit. But it makes us His dear children. Let's just simply look at that. It means that we are precious to Him. We are special in the eyes of God. We have a special place in the heart of God. Another example of the true glory of the church the main theme is the glory of the church, the beauty of the church. You say, why is that? What is it that makes the church glorious? And the answer is because it's the dear child of God. It's the beloved of God. It's the institution that has a precious and a special place in his heart. That over against the shameful, disgusting, vile place the members of the church used to have as children of disobedience and children of wrath. It's an amazing thing to consider that we who, while yet sinners, the holy and the righteous God considers most dear and precious in His heart. <laughs> and that, even before we knew we were children and even were remade in the image of God. Dear children. Dear especially because of the price it took Ask why it is that we are dear children, and the answer is, well, look at what it costs God. You didn't make yourself a dear child. You had nothing to do with becoming a dear child of God. That's not the doctrine that's taught. That you did that. God did that. Free to you. Free grace to you. But what did it cost God? It cost God dearly. God, as it were, had to rip from His own bosom, His own Son. And the Son had to willingly go and enter into our humiliation, into our shame, into our hatred of Him. And give Himself, as we read, an offering and a sacrifice to God. And the idea is, and this is where I'm going to use that term, this is the supreme expression of God's love. That's the idea that it's a sweet-smelling sacrifice in the nostrils of God. The apostle here is highlighting by inspiration what God thought of that. There are other demonstrations of God's love, other actions, other things that we can point to. And no doubt there is expressions of the love of God in His own inner being that we do not know. The Son knows. The Father knows and the Spirit knows, but we do not know. But as far as us human beings are concerned, if we have to ask the question and answer it, how much does God love us and how deep is the love of God? How wonderful is the love of God? What does it mean to be a dear child of God? One can only point to the walk of love by Christ in offering himself a sacrifice. That's the idea 
of a sweet-smelling savor that even with regard to God, when God considers himself and what he's done, he remembers always what he did in Jesus Christ. A sweet-smelling savor means in the first place that God approved of it. It was a work of God that God said, that's right, that's what I wanted, that's what I expected. That work has accomplished my eternal purpose for it, namely that it has completely removed the guilt and the stain of sin. It is that which is acceptable and right and true and sufficient for these dear children of mine. And that it's a sweet-smelling savor means in the second place that it lingers. God remembers it. His mind is on it. He thinks about it. That's the thing about odors and smells. They linger. They stay in the air. And this is a sweet-smelling one. The kind of one where one smells it. A smile comes to their face and they say, Amazing. Wonderful. Beautiful. Lovely. How terrible, how wicked then, when one looks at that and sees that, especially when it's presented in the Holy Gospel and says, well, I don't think much of that. Or maybe that's true, but I need something more. Something more is necessary and needed for me to be a child of God. Or I find the love of other creatures and other things more important and more lovely in my sight. There are other sweet smells and perfumes that waft into my nose that get my attention and attraction more than that which is the sweet-smelling savor in the nostril of the living and holy God. Moving on, this is a love that is of a certain character. We learn a lot about love here. That's important because, well, we know our calling is to love God and to love our neighbor. And it would be helpful for us to put that calling here in that framework, is it not? If we are to be followers of dear God, of, of God as dear children and walk in love, certainly that is love for God and love for the neighbor. And we live in relationships of love. We are called to love our spouse and to love our children and love our fellow members in the church, especially. Well, what then is love? Well, let's look at the thing we are to imitate. Let's look at this sweet-smelling example and expression of God's own love, even Christ's own love. And you will see, in the first place, it gives. And walk in love as Christ also loved us and hath given Himself. The and hath given Himself is explaining the love. The point of the text is not that this is some strange, weird, perhaps unique example of love, but this is the very character of love. Love always gives of oneself, and love never takes. It doesn't take. If you find yourself in a relationship, you young ladies, where a man is taking, run. Send him packing. It's not love. 
If your attitude towards your spouse is take, take, I'm not getting enough out of this. I need more. This isn't satisfying to me. It's not love. It's certainly not the love of God. And it's certainly not the love of Christ. Maybe human beings will look at it and say it's love. Maybe you think it's love, but it's not love. Love gives. Love always gives. And if you have a love that takes, that's not love. In fact, it's damaging. It's hurtful. You will discover that it's a love that takes one's dignity, one's personality, one's gifts. It takes away from what God has actually given an individual. It's theft. It's abuse. It's murder. And it's rooted always in self-love. That's what it really is. It is self-love. Self-love always takes. It uses others. It uses them for one's own personal satisfaction and gratification. This is what underlies all abuse in the home, in the church, in the world. Love gives. And one love gives of one's self. It's not merely love, you men. If you give your wife roses, and if perhaps you've made her angry, you buy her off with some other gift, expensive gift. Oh, love gives. It gives presents. But it's not love unless one gives one's self, gives one's body, one's time, one's energy. Because love, you see, is the desire for the best and highest good for someone else. It is to look at your spouse and say, I want the best for you. I want you to have what I have. I want to, you to have it so much that I will give myself to see that you get it. Is that not the love of Christ? Also, love is sacrificial. Christ's love was an offering and a sacrifice for sin. You and I can't do that. We cannot so love that we atone for sin, that we make payment, that we provide what God demands because of our violations against His law. But nevertheless, love is an offering. It's given. Freely given. Again, you cannot take love. You cannot exact love. And notice that's true even with regard to God. That's an amazing, mysterious thing here. Even with regard to His own dear children, God doesn't simply take our love. He isn't like some sort of parasite that sucks it out of us. That's not love. He moves us wonderfully and mysteriously. We are really returning His love. That's how He does it. But you notice that in your own relationships too. With regard to walking in love, it is always the case that one gives of oneself sacrificially as an offering, a gift, a thankful gift, and it involves sacrifice. The complete disconnection of oneself 
for one's pleasure, for one's own advantage. Where you don't find that, you don't have love. There's two ways that this is carried out. I will be brief because we will have plenty of opportunity to explain this further. First of all, it talks about being followers of God as dear children with regard to the neighbor. And if you want to know what that looks like, that's what follows in the section that we read. It has to do with, for example, negatively fornication, uncleanness, covetous, filthiness, foolish talking, and jesting. Notice those are all examples of not loving your neighbor, not being a follower of God as dear children. Those aren't love. Fornication and adultery is not love. It's taking. It's harming. It's hurting. It's self-gratification. It's selfish. It's pride. Then there is what we have, especially with regard to another in the church. That too is on the foreground. In fact, notice what it follows. If you want an example... There's many that follow. He's going to talk about the relationship of a husband and wife. That follows from this. We're going to have more opportunity to talk about a relationship as husbands and wives and our relationship to our children. But notice, with regard to the members of the church, this is what he was talking about when he said, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You want to know what it is to imitate God, to walk in love as Christ? There it is. Look at how God talks to you. Look at how God speaks to you. Look at how what God does for you. And especially look at forgiveness. Forgive even as God has forgiven you. Now I want to conclude by making special application to us as parents. And I may do that because of two considerations. First of all, as parents. You parents are God's dear children. And you, therefore, are called to imitate God, and especially imitate God with regard to God's dear children which in the second place are your children. In other words, if you were to ask God, how is it that I am to imitate God as a dear child and walk in love? First, God would say, on your own children. Because they're my children. They're my dear children. Well, in the second place, let's look at the dear children themselves. Your children, my children. What are they? They also are dear children who are called to walk as God walks, to imitate God. So this very much has something to do with how we conduct ourselves in the home and in the family. The most important, basic, and influential means by which children, all children, learn to imitate God is through fathers, through parents. That's what this text is all about. You see the application? Oh, you can't make your children God's children no more than you can make yourself God's children. But we deal with those children as God's children, as God's own dear children. That's why we baptize them. And God says now, you are to teach them. You are to teach them to walk as I walk, to imitate me. That's your job as parents. 
And how are you going to do that? By doing it yourself. We talk about nurture and rearing of children. We talk about being good examples and all kinds of things. But here, it is in plain black and white. Your calling and my calling as a father and mother is to teach our children to imitate God. Well, how are they how to learn to imitate God? Where do they learn that? How do they learn how God behaves? Is it, first of all, the looking directly at God who's unseen? Is that the way God made us? Is that the way God made us even spiritually? And is that especially true with regard to children? And you'll discover something about children. The great difference between children and adults is that children learn concepts through concrete examples. Adults can more understand abstract thoughts. They can understand how God behaves by thinking of other things and looking through the Scriptures. But a child, your child, God's dear children, if they want the example of how God walks, they're going to look right at you. In fact, they probably know this truth better than you and I do. They know it naturally and instinctively as God's own dear children. Like a baby bird learning how to fly. Or that little colt just born that's wobbling on its legs. It's going to look right to mom and to dad. To watch their fluttering wings. To look at how they stand and are standing for what to do. They will learn how to love as God loves from you. Now you can teach them how to love as the world loves. And indeed, that's the problem with many children, even in the church. They grow up, they start their own homes, they rear their own families, and they're nothing but trouble in the church. They divide the church. They create trouble with their neighbors in the church. They're disrespectful. They're rude. They're proud. They take. They hurt. They abuse. And often, it is learned. It was learned from a father or from a mother who did the very same thing. Perhaps even to their own offspring and children, which makes it even worse. We may complain in the church, and we may see things in the church, and we may criticize in the church, but let's understand and know where it comes from. It comes from imitation, from learning. And when it's evil, and when it's not love, or evil, even worse, that goes as love, then that was taught. It was learned in far too many cases. Oh, I know there's the outlier. There is the occasional child raised by godly parents who love God and are God's own dear children who walk in love as Christ did. And that child rejects that. Oh, I know that. But this passage comes to you and to me as parents especially. And it says now, in your marriage... Because sad to say, often the children learn this evil and they learn this hatred and not 
love but self-love by the husband's attitude toward the wife or the wife's attitude toward the husband or they see how the parents behave toward other members in the church. It's not just toward the children themselves. And far too often they try to buy off the children with all kinds of gifts and presents, but they see through that. Love your spouse. Love your children. Be followers of God in that regard as dear children. And walk in love. Walk in love as Christ walked in love. Sacrificing yourself. Forgiving. Being kind. Being good. Finding each other at the foot of the cross for forgiveness when we have done ill or harm to one another. Imitate God as His dear children. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, our God, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee, O Lord, for making us Thy dear children. And give us the grace, Lord, the eyes to see, the will, the heart, to imitate Thee, to imitate especially and most importantly Thy love, so that we walk in love as Christ also loved us and hath given himself for an offering and a sacrifice to thee, our God, as a sweet-smelling savor. And may our own behavior in life be a sweet-smelling savor, not that of atonement, but of that which is pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.